Welcome to Puro Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by reporter Brian Chasna. Kerry Clack, columnist, editorial writer. We hope you all enjoyed uh, Super Sunday yesterday. Congratulations to the Los Angeles Rams and uh, and their fans. Um, this is... Uh, I'm going to stretch things a little bit and say this is a Super Monday in Texas. It's the first day of early voting. And um, there's, I think, the, the race that has attracted the most attention in the San Antonio area and uh, probably the, the one that will be the most impactful is the race for county judge, particularly on the Democratic side, because this is a Democratic county. And the winner of that primary is, is, uh, will definitely be uh, the favorite to win in November. And, you know, we have, uh, I think what's been, a, we've all agreed is, is kind of a toss-up election. We've got three formidable candidates, uh, former District Court Judge Peter Sakai, uh, we've got uh, State Representative Ina, Ina Minjares, and former Mayoral Chief of Staff Ivalice Mesa-Gonzalez. Um, one interesting development has been that in the past couple of weeks, we've seen um, endorsement videos uh, on behalf of Ivelisse Mesa Gonzalez by Mayor Ron Nuremberg, who she worked for. And he's endorsed her from the very beginning, but he did a, a really uh, strong video for her. And Joaquin Castro, uh, a U.S. congressman, uh, who's, I think is probably the most popular Democrat in the, in the Bear County area. Um, in both cases, they referred to her as the mayor's right hand. They made a, a real point of emphasizing the role she played in helping uh, Mayor Nuremberg sort of navigate the city through the COVID pandemic, which I think is the the part of his record that he's gotten the highest marks for. So um, we're going to listen to uh, a little bit of the the mayor's video, and we'll talk about it. Hi, I'm Mayor Ron Nuremberg. I've worked with Ivelisse Mesa Gonzalez now for a number of years, and she was my right hand as chief of staff of the mayor's office during a very challenging time for San Antonio. We worked together on issues ranging from the COVID response to the recovery of our economy and getting folks back on their feet, to housing policy and the work that we're doing to mitigate and adapt to the changing climate. And of course, the equity frame that we're putting on all of our resources and initiatives to ensure that every San Antonioan has an opportunity to thrive. So I'm greatly confident because of that executive experience in my office that she will be a wonderful Bear County judge. You know, he's he's really sort of tying her campaign to his record as mayor. Um, when I talked to him last week, he was really emphasizing how um, the the sort of connection they have working together in the mayor's office would be helpful to the community uh, if she's county judge, because they already have a positive working relationship. I mean, I think we all know that endorsements uh, don't necessarily carry a lot of weight. I think it depends on the circumstance. Sometimes they, they give a certain credibility to a campaign, but as far as getting people out to vote, that's a, that's a different thing. Um, Brian, I w- kind of want to get your thoughts when, when you hear the mayor referring to her as, you know, his right hand, Joaquin Castro was saying the same thing in, in a race that we all think is probably pretty close. Uh, what impact do you think this might have? Well, I mean, the first thought I had was, you know, his, his motivation for, uh, making sure that she's victorious in the primary. I mean, it's, it's really important for the mayor to have an ally in that seat. Right. Um, Mayor Nuremberg worked really well as far as, as far as I could tell from the stories I've worked on, uh, with Judge Wolf that they, they meshed really, really well together. Yeah. Uh, I do, I don't know what, uh, the mayor's relationship is like with the other candidates. Um, but I, I can only assume that, that having his former chief of staff in that position would be 
advantageous not only to her but to him. Yeah, uh, Carrie, uh, w- what are your thoughts? I mean, do you think that um, that having these videos, which she's she's sharing on on social media now, uh, the both the mayor. Uh, video, Joaquin Castro's uh, former state senator, Leticia Vandepute, has done a video that's also getting uh, shared um, by Eva Lise uh, Mesa-Gonzalez. Uh, what what, what uh, impact do you think this might have? Uh, and and I, I need, I'll, I'll preface this by saying that, that when I was um, Congressman Castro's district director, I hired Eva Lise as, as uh, our second intern. She actually would have been our first intern, but at the time we thought her brother was going to go work for for Joaquin's Washington office at the time, but he didn't mm-hmm. until later on. I think it. I, I think it, it is important. I mean, this this is a this is the most interesting race locally we have, and you have yeah. three gifted, very capable candidates who no one will be voting against. In other words, if whoever you're voting for, you're not going to be voting against the other two. There's no polarizing figure there. That's a great point, and. Yeah. Yeah, so, so, so I would say of the three, Eva Lise has the has the lower name recognition. So, and for people who who don't necessarily spend a lot of time in, in politics and just you know just follow stuff, maybe look at our endorsements, they see that someone is endorsed by the mayor and endorsed by by Congressman Castro. That helps. Now, now the question is, you know, you know, what is the difference if, in in voting and polling between Ivelisse and and Ina and, and and Judge Sakai, is it enough to make a difference? But I have to think it's 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 going to mean something. Yeah, I think so too. And and it's you know I think most people seem to think that we're gonna we're gonna have a runoff with, with two of these three candidates. And uh, you know th- this, I think just the um, the expression from from the mayor and from the congressman that she's you know someone who. Uh, you know, will will work well with the mayor, help the city and county governments work together. I think that that's just, you know, there there really aren't any big policy differences between these three candidates. I mean, I've I haven't heard any of them really uh, go go out on a limb on any. On, I think they all are talking about doing similar things, but I think it comes down to a sense of you know competence, a sense of uh, you know, and I, I mean, one of the things that she has talked about a lot is just the ability to kind of bring people together, as they were able to do when it, when it came to getting the workforce development proposition uh, formulated and on the ballot in 2020. So um, I think that that's, you know, we're, we're going to see two of these three candidates, I think, uh, make it out of this, uh, this first round. And, I think, and I, can I, can I, just, just an analogy, and it's not a perfect analogy because uh, it, it wouldn't be as, 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 as dramatic of an upset, but you know, when, when Nina Hidalgo beat Emmett back in, you know, what was it? Four years ago yeah. uh, for, for Harris County commission. I mean, she came out of nowhere it wouldn't be as dramatic in this because this is just a democratic primary and, and, and she's not running against an incumbent, but um, that's just something to look, but I agree. It's, it's, there's, there's going to be, there's going to be a, a runoff. And, um, and I think, you know, I, I know you said Gilbert, yes, the Democrat will be the favorite to win in the fall, but man, that's going to against the Barry, that's going to be a, it's going to be a great race. That will be. And this will, this will be the first time in, a long time that you will have, I think, a Republican with um, a, a real chance in in that race because uh, Trisha Berry is somebody yeah. who's who you know has some bipartisan appeal and also 
I mean, we don't we don't know. I mean, the, if if this is going to be uh, the kind of Republican wave year that some have predicted, but it's it's certainly a possibility. Um, and I know I've talked to people who are kind of involved in in some of the judicial races in Bear County, and we've seen we saw it in twenty eighteen. I mean, I'm sorry, 2014, we saw uh, Republicans basically sweep Democrats out of the courthouse. Um, in 2018, Democrats gained a lot of seats back. But um, there's some nervousness there on the Democratic side that uh, we could see uh, because you know, judicial candidates tend to be the ones who, um, when there's a wave election, they're, exactly. kind of, they're kind of caught in that. And uh, so I think that that, yeah. that suggests to me that there is some, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that, that uh, it'll uh, something as high profile as a county judge race will will uh, will swing that way, but I think that it's um, that's what Trisha Berry's banking on. That this is this is the year. This is the best shot that she would have. Um, wanted to talk a little bit about uh, a big political event that we had over the weekend on Saturday. New York Congresswoman and uh, progressive rock star Alexandria Ocasio Cortez was in San Antonio at Paper Tiger, and she was campaigning uh, on behalf of two uh, Democratic congressional candidates, Jessica Cisneros, who's challenging uh, incumbent Henry Cuer in, in uh, U.S. District 28, and Greg Kassar, the former Austin uh, council member who's running for the t- uh, Texas 35 seat that uh, Lloyd Doggett is, is vacating. Um, and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talked about her time organizing in Texas when she was a teenager and, and her belief even then that Texas was going to change the country. She had glowing things to say about both Jessica Cisneros and Greg Kassar, and she was very critical of Henry Cuellar, uh, the, the Laredo incumbent, whose district includes part of San Antonio, uh, saying, you know, pointing out that he has been uh, uh, anti-reproductive rights for women. He's, you know, he's been, uh, had very hawkish policies on the border and has been, you know, kind of perceived by a lot of Democrats as somebody who's not, who's not really uh, stood up for progressive uh, uh, policies. Um, one of the really interesting things that, that happened, and I think this was the moment when she got the, the most thunderous applause, uh, was when she was talking about, uh, about the state and how it's changing. And she said, Texas turning blue is inevitable. And she said, it, uh, added that it was only a matter of time. And she, she didn't say that this was going to happen on its own. She said that people, you know, the, 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 if you go and call people, if you get out and vote, if you, you know, if you, the work that you do can help this happen sooner. But there was a really interesting response to that, to her statement that Texas turning blue is inevitable from Adam Serwer, the great uh, writer for The Atlantic, who also lives in San Antonio. And he tweeted on Saturday, it's not inevitable. And sometimes I think this kind of rhetoric is galvanizing for the right and demobilizing for the left. Republicans get to rile people up about supposedly becoming California and Dems think they can sit back and not have to persuade. Um Carrie, I wanted to, you know, get your reaction. I know that you saw that too. Uh, what was, what was your reaction to, uh, to, to what she said and to, uh, to Adam Sower's response? I, 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 I agree with him. I, there comes a point when we have to put a, a timeline on, on the word inevitable, because I, I do believe it, it, it works the dynamics that Adam talked about in, in, in concentrating and firing up uh, Republicans. But I think it also there's a, a complacency can sit, sit in with, with Democrats about, yeah, it's going to happen now. It's going to happen now. It's going to happen in, in 18. It's going to happen in 20. It's going to happen yeah. in 22. You know, there, there was a, a, a short story by the Russian writer Anton Chekhov. I think the, 
the, the death of a clerk. Anyway, there's this like deputy clerk who keeps a diary and the guy that's in charge is sick. So mm-hmm. the, the deputy clerk is just confident that he's going to, you know, he's got, he's a guy's going <laughs> to die. He's going to get the job. Yeah. The diary goes on for several years and <laughs> the guy never gets yeah. the job. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, that's that Texas. that's, I, you know, Texas, Texas Democrats, you know, we, you know, have a, are in danger of being like that clerk. Just it's going to happen. It's going to happen. But then it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, and one of the things that, that I don't know if Democrats are saying, say this now, I haven't heard it in a while, but for quite a while, uh, you would hear Democrats in looking at the growth of the, particularly of the Latino population in the state would say demographics is destiny. And uh, I always thought, well, you know, that's, that's kind of part of what, what I think Adam Sir was dealing with here. This, this, this issue that it's going to, it's, it's just going to happen. Let sort of nature take its course, which again, I don't think is what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was saying necessarily, but, but there has been that sort of sentiment in the democratic party that it's, it's just, let's, let's see as the population grows and it goes a certain way, it's, this is just going to happen. And, um, and obviously we've, we've gone through many, many cycles where we've seen that, that, uh, that it hasn't worked out that way. Um, one issue that is that has flared up in the the race for Texas 35, which is a, a district that uh, basically runs down the I, uh, 35 corridor from from uh, Austin and San Antonio, uh, has been the, the the issue of Israel, and you've, you've had Greg Kassar, who is um, you know kind of been a, a progressive champion in Austin, uh, hated by conservatives in Austin, and uh, he's worked very closely with the Austin chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, and um, he uh, wrote a letter, I believe it was in January, to an Austin rabbi, sort of explaining his position on on Israel. I think going into it thinking that maybe um, there's an assumption uh, among some people that you know progressive Democrats or are you know uh, they're sometimes accused of being anti-Semitic or or uh, that sort of thing. So I think he wanted to kind of clarify his position so that the the rabbi that he sent this to could could share it with anybody who had any questions about. About Greg Kassar. And uh, in the letter, he basically talked about um, uh, the the right of Israel. He supported the right of Israelis to live in their own democratic state uh, and to live in, in peace, uh, free from violent attacks from groups like Hezbollah or Hamas. He uh, voiced his support for continuing federal aid for the self-defense of Israel. But he also said that he believed in the right of Palestinian people to live in peace, security, and democracy. And he advocated for a two-state solution. Um, and he got uh, quite a bit of pushback. Um, and the uh, among the sort of the progressives who have been his biggest supporters over the years, and the Austin chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, they were they were critical of of, of this. And I think they were kind of reevaluating their their endorsement of him. And along the way, he just sort of asked that they would, you know, that he withdraw his request for the endorsement. And so individuals in the group may, uh, will continue to, uh, um, to campaign for him, but the organization is not, is not supporting him. So, um, I don't necessarily think this is going to have a big impact on the race. I think Greg Sarr is in pretty good position in, in this, uh, de- democratic primary. And I think, um, the progressives who may be disappointed with him on this issue are not necessarily going to run to either of his uh, major challengers, uh, Eddie Rodriguez or Rebecca Villagran. But um, but I do think it's interesting because it kind of points to a little bit of a, of a schism that we see in the Democratic Party now be, between the kind of 
a traditional sort of Chuck Schumer position, which is, you know, just ardent advocacy for Israel. And, you know, the kind of maybe what we're seeing maybe from younger progressives, which is much more critical of Israel, in some cases, uh, using the word apartheid to, to talk about um, the, the West Bank situation. And so, Brian, I want to kind of get your thoughts on on this issue. It felt to me like Greg Kassar was trying to find some kind of middle ground here between uh, maybe the traditional democratic position and and maybe the, the the what we're seeing now among some younger progressives. I mean, what what did you think? I mean, all I can say is that it, this is really tricky territory uh, uh, right. for obvious reasons. I mean, there's there's been a wave of anti-Semitism that we've even seen in our own backyard right. uh, with some of these neo-Nazi flyers being distributed in neighborhoods. Uh, yeah. You know, it's flared up during the Trump presidency and it makes a lot of people very uncomfortable and, and frankly uh, nervous. Um, I mean, you even have, you even had attacks, you had that synagogue in Fort Worth uh, mm-hmm. swarmed by the gunman. No one was killed other than the gunman, but um, you know, I, I think that, I think it is necessary for politicians to have an awareness that uh, sometimes, you know, criticism of Israel can start shading into anti-Semitism. Right. And I I would say, uh, you know, any, anyone who's, who's aware of that and is trying to walk that very difficult line of, uh, you know, uh, being political, you know, having your political views on, on policy, but, but also maintaining support for, for the Jewish people. I think that's important. Yeah. And, and he, he, he pointed out, I mean, that's, it's, it's, uh, it's great that you pointed that, that out because I mean, one of the things he, I think he wanted to, to, to bring up in this letter was that he was, he was against anti-Semitism and he was, and, and some of the, the, um, things that have occurred, the occurrences that you've mentioned, I, mean, I think these are the things that he was wanting to, to, to make it clear how, uh, you know, how opposed he was to that. I think the thing that he maybe got the the biggest pushback from his, you know, his usual supporters uh, was on the, the, the issue of continuing U.S. military aid for Israel. And, um, you know, I, I know this is, again, that's a sensitive issue. I think his perspective is that, that it's, it's important for the U.S. to protect Israel uh, as a democratic state in that region, while also trying to see if, you know, if a two-state solution can be worked out, and 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 trying to find a way that you know that that both the Israelis and the Palestinians can 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 live in in peace and in a secure environment. What were your thoughts on that, Kerry? Well, I think I think both one. Well, I think I, I know both of you uh, echo echo what I feel and what I what I think, and I think that I, I think that he threaded it down the middle as well as you can do in trying to to do justice to what is a, as Brian said, just a very complex, emotionally, politically fraught issue. Uh, I, I think there's, there's something to be said about having, look, you can criticize uh, Israeli policies, you can criticize anything about Israel and not being anti-Semite. However, there is that, that it can easily slide into that and to, to voice support for, for them, for Israel, but I also support the right of Palestinians to to exist and go for a two state option. Um, I, you know, we have to we have to be be able to allow people who we support 
and I say we, whatever our party is, whatever your ideology is, to be able to have views that might be more nuanced and may not always uh, tack with, with everybody else's thinking. And I, I thought, I, I don't know how much, how much better he could have done to give voice to both sides. I totally agree with you. And I, and I really felt like to me, the fascinating part was that he was getting, you know, some, you know, some uh, criticism on this because I, I looked at it and, and, and some people were surprised and saying, well, that we didn't, we didn't, we didn't know he felt this way. And I thought, you know, really he was trying um, to find something that would, that would, you know, that would, I think, be respectful of all, of all the different sides, which is, it's, it's a hard thing to come by. So, um, again, I don't think it's necessarily going to, I, uh, going to have a, a huge impact on the race, but I think that it's, it, I think it speaks to how sensitive that issue is. And, and as you said, Carrie, to the fact that sometimes people are unwilling to accept, uh, the idea that if someone they agree with 90% of the time, uh, might have a slightly different view on one issue. Uh, that, I think that comes up a lot. Um, before we wrap things up, wanted to talk a little bit about Shelley Luther. Um, Shelley Luther, many of you will remember, is uh, Dallas area uh, uh, hair salon owner who uh, Texas Republicans basically made into a political star in 2020 when she uh, defied a pandemic lockdown and refused to um, temporarily close her hair salon. And uh, I think this was one of the defining moments for, for Greg Abbott when I think about how Greg Abbott ha- handles things politically, because this was an executive order that he had signed, um, which temporarily shut down non-essential businesses. She defied the governor's order, and then he took the side of the judge who tried to enforce the governor's order because he sensed that his political base was on her side. So Shelley Luther is running for the Texas House, and she was at a forum about a week ago. Uh, she's also a former school teacher, and she was discussing the issue of uh, school choice. And uh, she started talking about transgender kids. And we're going to play that clip. And I would just uh, mention before we we listen to it to to listen for a really awkward pause. I think it's about thirty seconds into this clip. Really awkward pause where you sense where she freezes, and I think she realizes that she said the quiet part out loud. We're going to listen to that right now. I don't know any other counties that are more Bible Belt conservative than this district. And it's the Overton window. They have AOC in Congress on the left. And what we have done is become comfortable with what is okay in our society. I am not comfortable with the transgenders, um, the kids that they brought in my classroom. Um, when they said that this kid is tra- transgendering into a different sex, that I couldn't have kids laugh at them, like I couldn't have um, like other kids got in trouble for having transgender kids in my class. That's why I vote for school choice. Okay. Um. Carrie, uh, I think you you posted something on Twitter when uh, when the, the, this clip surfaced. Uh, what was your first reaction to it? <laughs> it's 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 not funny. It's 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 just like more of a of a, a scared laughter that you're hearing from me. It's that right. It's my my my. That's what she's saying is is my students, my kids should have the right 
to mock other kids who are different. Whether they're transgender kids, you know, why stop there? If they're in a wheelchair, why can't I mock, why can't they mock them? Yeah. Because if you if you're giving permission to mock what a set of kids for something that is different or you perceive as different, then where does it stop that you can can mock and make fun of children? And you're the teacher. Mm-hmm. And you and you're disturbed because that is a right that your children no longer have, your students no longer have, that they cannot mock and make fun of other children in your classroom. I mean, think about the psychology of that, that you're saying you're not, as a teacher, you're not disturbed at the idea that kids would be laughing at a transgender student. You're disturbed that they might not have the, uh, the freedom to laugh at that transgender student. That's, that's, that's the thing that's disturbing you. It's really, and, and it, it, it speaks yeah. to this idea that, that in the name of personal freedom and liberty, we, we have some of our politicians, this is a very much a Texas thing, that freedom and liberty are, are seen as these absolutes. And you will have some politicians stand up for the rights of people to have the freedom to do really abominable things. And they seem much more concerned about protecting the right of that person to do something awful or say something awful than, than the person who might be subjected to that. Uh, Brian, what, what did you think when you were in this? Well, she, she seems to be stuck in the Trump mindset. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And I say that to me yeah. that president, former president Trump, uh, he, he normalized bullying behavior. You mm-hmm. know? I mean, he, he made, he made it, uh, okay to, to do that. And, you know, he kind of unleashed a lot of negative energy and a lot of, a lot of, uh, cruelty. Um, and I think she's, uh, she's, she perhaps is channeling our former president. It was, uh, it was, it was, I, I think even people there were kind of stunned at, at that, uh, statement. And she seemed a little uh, kind of, kind of thrown off like that. You know, that's what she thought, but the idea of actually saying, yeah. saying it that way, I think it, I think she was a little, she kind of uh, was shaken by her own uh, by her own candor in that moment, but um, she's not alone. We have there are plenty of people in Texas politics who think like this, who who talk like this, um, and um, I, you know, it's ultimately it's going to be for the voters of that district to decide what they want. This is this is the this is the process we have. But I just think that um, I'm always feeling uh, ambivalent when it comes to playing a clip like that or talking about this, because it's, it's really such an ignorant and hateful sort of mindset. Um, and do you give it more oxygen? Uh, that's the question. But I, I do think that, um, people should know what, uh, you know, the, yeah. what, what yeah, this, she, yeah. she's been turned into, into something of a star in the party. Donald Trump was, was asking about her when he met with the governor in 2020. Uh, she became a, a celebrity off of this, uh, this, issue with her hair salon in 2020. And it's very clear that she really doesn't have, um, you know, she, she doesn't really know what she's talking about at all. And she has no business running for office. And we've got too many of those people in that, in that position. So on that note, that very cheerful note, uh, we're going to wrap things up. Uh, hope y'all, hope y'all get a chance to go out and vote and, uh, we'll be back with you next week. Take care.